Don't worry, I won't throw this at anybody. But I brought another prop today. Bailey, I'm going to borrow your stool here. I promise I'll put it back. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Today we will be in the 16th chapter. And while you're doing that, you can take out your core guide. And there's a place on the front to write some notes down. Things you might want to remember to discuss with your core group this week. How many of you have heard the phrase, oh, or maybe you've made this accusation of some people, oh, you're just living in denial? Um, I want to suggest this morning that um, living the Christian life is an exercise of living in denial. Um, You know what denial is, right? Um, No, it's not. Uh, a houseboat in Egypt. Um, You'll get it. Wait for it. Um, Kind of letting go of things. Maybe um, turning a blind eye or living through a set of circumstances and not realizing the full gravity or or ignoring the the situation. Um, So there's denial, but, but there's also living. And so I call this sermon Living in Denial because I I I think there's part of the Christian life, and, and, uh, and that's what I want to talk about today, that is a sense that there's denial, but there's, there's living. There's living. So as we look at the text this morning, I'd invite you to stand with me. Matthew 16, I'm going to read verses 21 to 28. Um, we're, we're in the series on the invitations of Jesus. This is week four. And, and I got to tell you, the fourth invitation, I think it's the most difficult. I think it's the hardest one. Um, just wrestling with it all week long. The, the fourth invitation is deny self. And, and that's just those two words, deny self, it gets our attention a little bit. This is a challenging one. We had come and see come and follow. We had, let's you know, participate in Jesus' ministry by let's go fishing. We kind of like that one. Now we get to week four, it's deny self. And these are the words. Uh, they come at a time where Jesus is teaching his disciples about his coming suffering and death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And Jesus said to his disciples, here's the invitation, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? yet forfeit their soul. 
Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Wow. I guess at the outset, probably have to be honest and say that sometimes I resist this. Maybe you're different than I am. Um, I think this is this ranks up there as one of the most challenging, most difficult, hardest sayings of of Jesus. I, I like to hold things in reserve sometimes. Um, not totally give it all over to Jesus, but, you know, just shelter a little part of my life. Deny self, Jesus says, means give everything over to him. I think I might resist that. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I think, oh, I can speak from my own experience. I want Jesus to define that. What, what actually do you mean when you say those words, Jesus? It may be one of those passages uh, that, that we'd rather maybe just draw a line through in our Bible. I watch people live, and I think they've lined this one out once in a while. We much prefer when Jesus says things like, come to me. All of you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, come to me. I, I'll give you rest. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Rest, maybe some relaxation. If you're carrying the heavy burdens of life around day after day after day, and Jesus says, hey, you know what? Let me shoulder that pack for a while. I, I like that one. We, we kind of just kind of sink into the, oh, yes, Jesus, comfort me. This is one of those passages that, that gets out the mirror. It's a mirror passage. It's one of those when we look at these words, it holds that mirror up right in front of our face, forces us to, to look into it. It's one of those passages where Jesus calls us out of our comfort zone where we would much, I'd rather be in my comfort zone than in a place that I'm out there on the edge and at risk. And so when, uh, when Jesus asks me to, to do some challenging work in my own life, and when that road just gets a little bit too difficult and, and uh, it's really hard for me to face myself in the mirror, I, I do what lots of people do. I talk about other people's problems. Are you different than I am? My favorite person to talk about? Don't worry, they're not here. <laughs> My favorite person to talk about their struggle and their problems is Peter. I can read about him. I can preach about him. I can talk about Peter. And, and you know, he's not here to defend himself, so I can pretty much say whatever I want. But you know why I like talking about Peter? probably because I've learned more in looking and observing 
at how Peter responded to circumstances in life. I've learned so much about myself in studying Peter. There's a struggle, a competition, if you will, in, in all of us to, to be double-minded, at least double-minded. Uh, there's the capacity that we all have to go our own direction. I want to chart my course. I want to make the plans. I want to make the decisions, and I want to go this way. And, and then there's Jesus' way, and that's sometimes this way. And the goal is that we would align our path with Jesus' way. So there's that struggle, that natural competition to go our way or to go the way of, of Jesus. And it's true for us. It, it was true for Peter as well. Uh, <clears throat> Peter had progressed through the invitations of, of Jesus. He had had the come and see experience with, with Jesus. Uh, he had left everything to follow Jesus. He left his, his boats, his nets, his business to follow Jesus around. Uh, Peter had the opportunity to participate with Jesus in his ministry, to travel with him, to listen to Jesus' teaching. He, he participated in helping people, in reaching people, in, in healing people, in, in feeding people. He was given the power to, to heal and to cast out demons. And, and, and at one point, Jesus had sent out the 12 to practice a little bit of ministry. He got to participate in, in, in all of that. And sometimes when we look at Peter's life, he is so dead on right. He's a stunning example of faith and his willingness to follow and just leave everything behind with, with no questions asked. Sometimes he just gives us such a powerful, good example. But, but our, uh, our text this morning catches him in a moment that's kind of opposite that. Did you notice that? Peter wants to set the trajectory of, of Jesus' life, of, of Jesus' ministry. Now, we never do that. We never tell Jesus what he can and can't do. Well, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on. To, to get the full impact of the passage that we just read, we really need to, to back it up one episode earlier in Matthew's gospel. It's chapter 16, a few verses earlier, verses uh, 13 to 20 there. Um, the situation, Jesus has taken the boys on a retreat. They have strolled about two days' journey north of the Sea of Galilee. They're at a place called uh, Caesarea Philippi, now, Caesarea Philippi was uh, it's kind of one of those resort areas. Uh, it's a destination point. It is lush. It is green. It's at the, it's at the base of uh, Mount Hermon, which is a peak that was about 9,000 feet, and, and it's snow-covered most of the year round. And uh, right there at Caesarea Philippi, you get the, the headwaters of, of the Jordan River, and it's also a really neat place. It's also a pagan place, godless place. Why did Jesus had the boys in Las Vegas, I'm not quite certain, but that's where they are. And so maybe it's just to pull them away, to maybe them in that environment is such a stark contrast to life with him. I, we don't know why that particular place, but 
But Jesus has his boys up there at Caesarea Philippi for a little rest, relaxation. Let, let's talk about our journey and talk about these uh, teachings so far. Let's talk about the cost of discipleship for a few moments. And so to launch into that, Jesus says, um, okay, you've been traveling with me for a bit. It's time for a pop quiz. And I don't know about you, sometimes Jesus' questions are difficult. Sometimes I don't know the right answer to Jesus' question. The disciples, we're in good company because the disciples didn't always get it either. Uh, oftentimes the disciples struggle to understand what Jesus is talking about. And oftentimes we hear Jesus say things like, you of little faith, when are you going to get it? When are you going to understand what I'm trying to teach you? So he asks them a question. And the question that uh, he asks them is an easy one. It's one of those softball questions. It's uh, back in... in uh, verse 13, the question is, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say I am? And this is not a trick question. Uh, Jesus just wants to know, what's the, word on, what's the word on the street? What do the internet polls say? How am I, how am I doing out there? Who, who do people identify me as? And I imagine that the disciples shoot their hands up in the air because they know the answer to this. They don't even have to give their own answer. All they have to do is give him a report. I can use somebody else's answer to the question to answer this question of Jesus. So I imagine, I'll answer that one, Jesus. I, I know that. And so they quickly say, uh, John the Baptist. Hmm, yeah, that's, that's good. Elijah. Yeah, you know, I, I think I've heard that one. And they go on, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And, and I think Jesus gets to the end and he says, well, that was a good report, boys. It's kind of what I've been hearing too. If you think about it, that's a question that we can answer too. Who do people say Jesus is? It's not too hard to find an opinion about Jesus out there. There's plenty of conversation that we can report on. Some, some people try and defend Jesus. Some people try and deconstruct Jesus. Uh, others try to just explain Jesus away. Well, if we look just at the Bible, <clears throat> he's referred to as King of the Jews, Light of the World, Prince of Peace. He's referred to as a carpenter. We could go on a long list of names and, and places and, and labels and, and uh, the way people described it, there's a long list in the Bible of who Jesus is. The Bible, he says, says that uh, Jesus is somebody who can heal you. Jesus is somebody who can cast out demons. Jesus can forgive your sins. He can feed the multitudes. The Bible says that he is a rabbi. The Bible says that he is a prophet. In the Bible, there are people who say he's a blasphemer. There's, in the Bible, there are people who say he's just a royal pain in the neck. That's a loose Greek translation. Um, he's dead. He's alive. He'll come again. There's all sorts of ways that we can describe Jesus. At the heart of the response that the disciples gave him was that Jesus was some sort of recycled prophet. John the Baptist, Elijah, 
Jeremiah. People are trying to take Jesus and put him in a box that's already been defined. Yeah, this Jesus person, he acts like this. We know this definition here. We're going we're to put him in that box. Sometimes, sometimes we have a difficult time allowing Jesus the freedom to define himself. We'd rather take what we know of Jesus, what we read about him, what we've been taught about Jesus, and we want to put him in a box that we've already defined. And so sometimes we kind of steal that privilege away from him. Jesus, we're not, I'm not going to let you define who you are in my life, or, or, uh, and certainly uh, I don't know if I want to let you define me either. Do you let Jesus redefine your categories? Do you let him define himself in your life? Or, or do you want to shove him in a box that, that already has a label on it? It's part of denying self. I told you this may be a difficult one. So that was, quest, that was question number one. <clears throat> question number two. First question was an easy answer. All Jesus asked for was a report. Question number two, Jesus point blank, straight up, says, who do you say I am? Imagine it got quiet. There weren't hands shooting up in the air at this point. If there were stage directions in the lines of our Bibles, you might say that the disciples' eyes were shifty looking around, looking down at the ground. It might even say that, you know, they were kicking the dirt and drawing little pictures with their toes, maybe changing the subject. Who do you say I am? Not such an easy question anymore. Peter, he's usually the first one to speak, isn't he? He, he, whether he's right or whether he's wrong, Peter, uh, he's pretty bold. He, he's willing to talk, and, and usually he says what other people are thinking and too chicken to say. He says, you're the Messiah, the anointed king, son of the living God. He got it right. He got it right. And Jesus immediately blesses him. Verse 19 says, Jesus gave him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Imagine that. This Peter that we know has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I imagine Peter, he gets a little bit excited. He's, uh, maybe he's pumping his fist. Yes, I finally got one right. You know, he's waving around his fingers, number one, yes. You know, we've been arguing about this, disciples, and, you know, every time we go somewhere, we, we've kind of, well, we got to test where we are in, in Jesus' entourage, and, and they argued a lot over who is the number one disciple, and now Peter, he can swing around the key. I got the keys, boys. We know the answer to that question. I'm number one. I, get, I think Peter got a little bit excited here. Jesus, if you notice in those verses, gave 
Peter a new name. Before this episode, Peter was known as Simon. And now, Jesus says in verse 18, you are Petros, rock. Jesus gives him the nickname Rocky. You are Petros. It's the Greek word for rock. And on this Petra, I'll build my church. In other words, Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build the rock of, of this church. If you notice the little word play there. And so when I think about Peter as the rock, what do you think of? You think of a you know, big, strong bedrock. You know, it's a, this is a rock that you are not moving anywhere. We were talking in staff meeting, and uh, I think it was Pastor Trent. He said, I think of the prudential rock. You know the one in the commercials? They did a good job with marketing. We know that, that rock there. I think it's Plymouth Rock, isn't it? That's a big rock. When I think of Peter, I think of a rock like that one. Uh, interesting note here, though, in the Greek, is that the Greek word that is in the text is petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. And that is... Um, the masculine form of the word. Uh, and the masculine form of that word, meaning rock, me means a rock more like this. One that you can pick up. It's a freestanding rock. It's a smaller stone, something that you can easily pick up and, and move around. And when you continue on in, in verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, movable rock, like this, and on this rock, in the Greek there, it's the feminine form of the word, which is petra, P-E-T-R-A. And the feminine form of the word means the bedrock, means the foundation is that rock like the prudential that doesn't move? And so what Jesus is, is just telling Peter there is, hey, I'm going to call you this rock right here because you're kind of a chip off the old block. You're, you're a chip off of me, and I am the foundation of this thing that we're going to build upon. So Peter, with your confession, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, son of the living God. On that confession, I'm going to build my church. And any of those who make a similar confession also become little rocks like this that can be used to stack together and create the church. See, when we confess Jesus as, as Lord, we, we also become these stones, these rocks. Paul tells the, the church in Ephesus uh, in Ephesians 2, 20 and following, he, he refers to Jesus as the cornerstone. As, uh, you, sometimes we hear Jesus as the cornerstone or, or the foundation, uh, and, and essentially Jesus is what holds everything together, holds everything up. And then later in Peter's ministry, Peter, I think, reflects probably back on a time like this, and, and he writes, Come to him, live a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Did you notice that that was passive language there? 
It's not building what we choose. It's not putting our, our rock anywhere we want, but as followers of Christ, as we deny ourselves, we allow Jesus to place us. If we consider ourselves a rock, we, we allow Jesus to be the builder, the author, the architect of this building. So we place our rock in his care, and he places us. Moving away from our own direction, we're, we're going Jesus' direction. We're, we're building part of the structure that, that Jesus is working on. So all of this happens just moments before the story that we read today. And Peter's still, I think, taking his victory lap. He's still, you know, jingling those keys to the kingdom. Um, and here's where the story takes a little bit of a turn. One that uh, we're not really expecting. Jesus has just affirmed that he was the Messiah. And that affirmation that Messiah meant something to Jewish people. Uh, the Jewish people thought of Messiah as a, an earthly ruler with charismatic power. They thought of Messiah as a victor, as a savior, uh, a descendant in the line of David, one who will take back the throne uh, from, from the Romans, kick, kick out the Romans, restore right worship in the temple. But Jesus, he's going on his own road over here. He defines Messiah as something altogether different than that. Yes, he's got to go to the center of power. Yes, he has to confront the leaders of the day. But then he says, but that's going to mean that I have to endure suffering and ultimately I have to die. And that's where Peter lost it. He heard the suffering and death part, and they really shouldn't be surprised if they've been paying attention all along to Jesus' ministry. There are people who have been accusing Jesus of, of doing all of his wonders and healings and everything um, with the power of the devil. There's those who are already calling him a blasphemer. There's those who are already making the rumblings of putting him to death. They, they should have at least picked up on the fact that everybody wasn't on board with what Jesus was doing. But Peter, he can't, he can't handle this. You know, sometimes we take our rock, our stone, and, and we, we put it in the wrong place. I think Peter's doing that. Peter doesn't like this kind of suffering and death talk, so he takes Jesus aside. Jesus, come over here. I need to take you over here and, and tell you a couple things on what this is going to look like. Can, can you picture Peter grabbing Jesus by the elbow and marching him off to like behind the woodshed or something? Because he takes Jesus aside and he lets him have it and he wags his finger in Jesus' face and he says, never, Lord, God forbid it, this will never happen to you. I mean, you got to hand it to Peter. That's a pretty bold move to, to rebuke Jesus like that. And maybe he's thinking, well, 
Jesus has just given me the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he's told me that I can, you know, whatever I bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever I loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So maybe Peter's just thinking, hey, the heat's gotten to Jesus here, and I need to set him straight. I need to make sure that he knows exactly what this whole Messiah thing is all about. And he says, no, Jesus, this will never happen to you. It's kind of like he's trying to save Jesus. Jesus, you can go your own way. You don't have to go through all this suffering and, and death kind of stuff. Why walk into that trap when you could just as easily walk around it and, and avoid it? Peter, I think he puts his stone in, in a different place. Jesus is over here saying, I got to go and I got to suffer and I got to die. Peter says, no, we're not going to do that way. And it must have been some kind of temptation for Jesus because Jesus responds very sharply. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Which recalls the time when Jesus was uh, out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And, and Satan's temptations were all for Jesus to do some really good things, but in the timing and, and in the method of his own choosing. Satan was trying to distract Jesus to go his own direction. Peter was trying to distract Jesus to go his own direction. And, and I think it must, have been, it must have been a credible temptation because Jesus says, get behind me. You remind me right now of that deceiver, that tempter that we know as Satan. So suddenly Peter goes from, from being the foundation of the church and the gatekeeper of heaven, and now he's the spokesperson of Satan himself. Imagine that. It's kind of devastating to be rebuked in front of your friends like that in public. When I get chewed out, I prefer to have it be behind closed doors. But it opens up this prime teaching opportunity for Jesus. You know, sometimes we learn best after we've made a mistake, something to learn from and build upon. Jesus doesn't want there to be any illusion about where following him will lead. And Jesus recognized Peter's propensity to think uh, in human terms. And he realized that Peter didn't, and, probably, and the other disciples, Peter speaks for them all. Jesus realizes that Peter doesn't understand that Jesus' mission was to transform their lives through suffering, death, and resurrection. Uh, I think he realized that Peter was doing what, what we do, trying to define Jesus' mission in our own lives. So, so being the good teacher that Jesus is, he, he gathers the crew, and we've got to go through a lesson on what this discipleship, what it means to follow me. Maybe we should clarify that and define it a little bit. Jesus' fourth invitation is to deny self. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's three things that he specifies for us in, I think it's verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. 
take up their cross and follow. Those three things right there, deny, take up, follow, it's not a choice after that. Those are all imperatives in the Greek language. That means they're commands. Do this. Deny, it means to, to disown yourself. And we, we usually hear that as a charge to, to give up something. Some pleasure, some activity, like, you know, give up something during Lent. But don't confuse this with just the denial of things. Denying self, it breaks every tie that connects a person to our deepest desires and will. Denying self means that there's no conflict of interest between uh, what God wants for us and what we want for ourselves. Kind of rules out seeking safety and security in the things of this world. Jesus says, strip all of that away. I want your, your will to be in tune with God's will. He says to take up the cross. People back then knew exactly what he was talking about. You'd be hard-pressed to walk the roads, especially in and around Jerusalem, without seeing crosses and people dying on them. When Jesus says, take up your cross, it was very evident what he meant. He wasn't telling them to seek suffering and to seek death like that, but be willing to go that far if necessary for my sake. It wasn't just, you know, wearing a, a necklace as jewelry or sticking a cross emblem on the back of our car. People knew exactly what this meant. To take up your cross, you might think about it in, in these terms. It means to take on a burden of sacrifice, a burden of serving other people. Denying self and taking up your cross means that we must die to our own will and take up God's will, give up time and, and resource for the benefit of, of serving other people. The Christian life is a, is a life that's always concerned with others more than it's concerned with ourselves. Deny self. Take up your cross. Follow me. Be perfectly obedient. In every moment, choose love. Choose Jesus. Walk in his footsteps. Look where he is going and follow along. Look what he is doing in the world and participate with him. Let go of your own desires and pursue his desires. I know that's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to do all the time. Jesus doesn't paint a picture of partial commitment, though. There's no part-time Christianity. He says it's all in. Abandon all for the sake of Christ. Clinging to your own desires, your own way, your own will, it's, it's a way of trying to save your own life. And Jesus says, I'll take care of that part. I'll save you. Jesus says, if you try to save your own life, you'll, you'll lose it. 
It's the ultimate paradox, this Christianity thing. We oftentimes think that sacrifice diminishes our existence. That this call to deny self, to, to say no to things, laying aside personal comfort and satisfaction, that, that we sometimes see that as a, that it severely limits our existence and, and our freedom. Peter stopped hearing Jesus teaching at the suffer and death part. He missed the, but I will be raised to new life again. So there is denial, yes, but there is living in denial. I want to ask you to consider this morning that the turning over control of your life, it's really, it's, it's really, it's not an invitation ultimately to die, but to live. Yes, we lay aside our own prerogative, our, our own things. We sacrifice, we give, we take on this burden of sacrifice. But it's really, Jesus is really inviting you into new life. Paul told the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Everything old has passed away and become new, which is life. When we lose our lives in Jesus, we find a life in him and a depth and a richness that we have never known or experienced before. And this is really the journey that Jesus invites you to follow him on. There's not really any way uh, around it. You know, Peter, he wanted, to, he wanted to build his... He wanted to build a little structure over here. If you go on hikes out in the woods, sometimes you come across these little cairns, little stacks of stone. They're, they're kind of neat looking. There are own individual after, efforts to say, you know, I made my mark on this trail. I was here. I built this. And sometimes... We take the rock and we evaluate where Jesus is going and we say, you know, that's good and all, Jesus. I, go ahead, go that way, but, but right now I need to build something right here. So we lay down our, our own stone and maybe we convince a few other people to come along with us. But Jesus says, that's not, that's not what you need to be doing. I, I want to take your life and I want to build it together with other Christ followers, and I want to build this thing called the church. You know, when you start accepting the invitations of Jesus, they, they are invitations. They're, they are a choice. You have the right to choose whether or not you follow Jesus. But if you accept the first invitation of Jesus, the rest of them are no longer optional. not pick and choose which invitation to say yes to and which one to say, you know, I'm going to take a pass. It's taking all of them. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, sometimes you, uh, you just do a number on us and 
Your word is so challenging to us. And Lord, sometimes we want to go to destinations of our own choosing. And it's difficult, Lord, to, uh, to go all in. Sometimes we just want to build our own structure, to take our own path. And you continually remind us to follow you. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for all of us that we would be willing to lay down our lives for you. That we would be a, a people who pick up the burden of sacrifice, of service, extending your love to other people, no matter the cost to us personally. Lord, we know you, you did not go around seeking to protect yourself. You gave yourself away freely. When you tried to go off on your own to pray and to, to recover and to find moments of prayer to be in communion with the Father. The people followed you. And instead of pushing them away, you, you looked out on them with compassion. And you recognized that, that we were there and that we were like sheep without a shepherd. And you ministered to us. Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be, each in our own way and in our lives, people who would sacrifice in the same way. We would follow your example, that we would see people as you see people, as broken and in need of a Savior. So I just pray that we would be sensitive to that. And when you nudge us, we will go. When you poke us, we'll respond. And that over time, maybe the nudges and pokes are less because we are starting to see like you do and we're, and we're responding and following you at our own free will. But I just pray over us this morning you know each and every one of our needs. You, you know how each of us are broken. You know where our spirit hurts right now. You know the health issues that we face. You know the, the financial woes that we have. You know the, the, the vocational challenges that we have and the relational issues. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to see you in all of those things, that, to see that you are walking with us as we face them. Lord, we honor you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.